<clears throat> All right, let's look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 5. We're in verses 1 through 17 tonight. We're calling our study Aftershave Loathsome. These are, these are really, you know, one day at my eulogy, you'll remember these titles. That's all you'll remember, but anyway. Tom Hanks, if you'll recall, had to lose 55 pounds for his role in Castaway. Christian Bale lost one-third of his body weight, 63 pounds, for a film role. Colin Farrell recently lost 40 pounds for an upcoming film. I don't think so, but perhaps they took their cue from Ezekiel. We're not told how much weight he lost, but consider the facts. Every day for 430 days, he acted out the upcoming siege of Jerusalem. With a frying pan in his hand, lying down outside his house, preaching to a model of the city of Jerusalem, he barely drank anything and he ate what were starvation rations cooked over a fire fueled by cow dung. He must have been gone a mere shadow of himself, after the days of the drama were done. When they were done, he added a climactic finale. It seems the final act was only performed once because it involved shaving himself bald. Let's put ourselves in that audience for this grand scene as the curtain, as it were, comes up on the final act, the final performance. Let's read verses 1 through 4. And you, son of man... Take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. You shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are finished. And then you shall take one-third and strike around it with the sword, and one-third you shall scatter in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. You shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there, a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. Now, as we're looking at this, interesting to note that Ezekiel did the same things. He performed the same acts, this same drama for more than a year, 430 days. From the point of view of Ezekiel as God's minister, it reminds us that God values faithfulness. I talk about this a lot. I'm really pretty excited about this when it comes to discovering things in God's Word because any one of us can be faithful. We may not think that we're ever going to do great things. Uh, you know, we may feel like we're uh, not destined for that kind of uh, fame and all, even in the Christian community, but that doesn't matter. We can all be faithful. Uh, however, it's not easy at all to stay in one place and to do basically the same thing. A lot of Christians grow weary in their well-doing because it can seem monotonous. Uh, you know, think of that stay-at-home mom. Uh, you know, uh, how many years before you, you, you're going to see the fruit of your labor in raising that son and that daughter as unto the Lord and then, you know what, there's always that sneaking suspicion, isn't there? You know, are they really going to walk with the Lord? Are they going to follow the Lord? Every day clinging to that promise. If I train up this child in the way he or she should go, uh, then, you know, they will not depart from the ways of the Lord. 
And there's a certain monotony in there. There's a joy in it. There's a wonder in it. There's a grace in it. But there's a monotony in it. And many of us find that just, you know, the place that God has us, we're maybe not in a full-time ministry, but, you know, our career or our, our place of employment or our school, whatever it is, that's our place of ministry. But there's a lot that goes on that's just monotonous and, and, and you know, day in and day out. And quite honestly, over the years, you find out that it is really difficult for people to be faithful and to just continue to walk with the Lord if there isn't a whole lot of fanfare all the time in their life, if there aren't a whole bunch of changes going on. And so faithfulness, very important. Now, from the point of view of those coming to be ministered to, it reminds us that you never know when God is going to meet you in a new and special way. Uh, I don't know how often people came to see this drama there outside of Ezekiel's house, but, you know, for... Uh, for a number of days, uh, it was pretty much the same. And then all of a sudden, one day he came out and he laid down on his other side uh, for 40 days. And then now it's coming to an end and he adds another act. And, uh, you know, we can kind of fall into a habit and think, well, you know, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, boy, I really enjoy those, sir. I'm not even suggesting we don't enjoy, you know, our Bible studies or other studies that we do during the week. But do we have a sense that God can meet us in a special way at, at those times? And, and, and if he doesn't, uh, not so much that we would be disappointed, but that we would be anxious for the next time that we can meet with the Lord to see what he might do in a special way. I've gone to, I don't know how many, uh, I was going to say hundreds, but uh, you know, I would guess dozens and dozens of pastor's conferences. Uh, and, and some of them are better than others. They're all you know, places where the Lord speaks to you in some ways, but there have been two or three of them over the years where God absolutely spoke to me. I mean, just, you know, man, just right there. Uh, you know, that's exactly what it sounded like. To you. I knew it was God because he could only make that noise. I would never go. But anyway, uh, and just, you know, I can remember uh, if I had time, I'd tell you about it. I probably have told you about them over the years, different ones. But, uh, you know, and, and just whether it was God during a time of prayer or somebody in the message, it just all of a sudden I was just gripped with the sense that God was speaking directly to me about a very important issue uh, in my life. And so, uh, you know, God wants to meet us in new and special ways, but uh, He doesn't always, uh, and we just need to persevere. And so faithfulness, perseverance. Then it says, when the days of the seizure finished, in verse 2, that refers to the days of... Ezekiel's dramatic representation of the siege, not the actual siege of Jerusalem, uh, that was still future. This was time for Ezekiel's last act and he would move on to a different way of ministering. Now, I wonder how many people were in the audience outside Ezekiel's house that last day. I'm tempted to think not many. However, some shows have quite a long run. Phantom of the Opera has been running continuously on Broadway since 1988. It's a phenomenon. Ezekiel was, after all, God's prophet. We know from verses later in the book that the elders of Israel would come to him seeking a word. He may have had a sizable group outside of his house every day. Uh, maybe some would ridicule him. Maybe others were interested in, in uh, the symbolism. There were righteous souls left in Israel, and so we just don't know. Now, word may have gotten out that the performance would end after 430 days. We don't know exactly all of the details it could be that Ezekiel started a teaser campaign 
you know, where he's, you know, he just had the number 430 up there or something, you know. Who would do that? Just put a number up and make you wonder what that's all about. But anyway, uh, you know, he could have just put that on people. Was it, is it 430 people, 430 days? If it's 430 days, maybe something's going to happen. So it could have, there could have been a real buzz there outside of his house, uh, uh, you know, that this was going to be the final act. And so Ezekiel went through Acts 1 and 2 and 3, and then all of a sudden from somewhere he produced a sword. With it he proceeded to shave his hair and his beard. Now, guys, I want you to think about that for just a minute. Pause. That's a pause and reflect kind of a moment. I remember when I was a little kid, how many of you remember balsa wood? Did they even make balsa wood anymore? Is it still a famous thing? I used to make these little balsa wood airplanes, you know, that they were pretty cool, and we'd modify them and stuff. And, and um, I saw my brothers using razor blades, you know, when they would cut balsa wood. And so, uh, one day I was working on a balsa wood plane and I went into the bathroom and my brothers got his razor, his safety razor, and took out the razor and did all my balsa wood cutting and stuff like that. And then I went and put the razor back in his, uh, the, in his uh, razor, razor blade back in his razor because I'm just, you know, I had never shaved before. So the next morning, the next morning at breakfast, he came out practically bleeding to death. I mean, his, this, this one, you know, you know how, I don't know where you start shaving, but I always start right here. And this, he had cut a swath through his face. Just, it was insane. And, and, and my dad or my mom, somebody said, what happened to you? He goes, I don't know. I was just shaving. It's like something happened to my razor. And I didn't know any better. And I said, oh yeah, I, cut, I used that for balsa wood yesterday. It was a time when my father had to protect me. And uh, I didn't know. What do I know? You know, so anyway. So it's quite a project to shave off all your hair and a full beard, even with scissors and proper razors. Just for fun, I don't have time and I didn't do it. But on the, I, I looked online and there's a whole website devoted to how to properly shave your beard and hair. You know, if you're going to shave it all, I mean, there's a whole procedure. It involves lotions and potions and, you know, scissors. And, if, you know, you might want to go to a barber first, get your hair really, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I remember that I, years ago when I had regular colored hair, I, I had a beard. And uh, when you cut it off, I mean, you don't, you, you've got to do some things to get to where it's cuttable. And then you've got to be really careful. I mean, you, you know, your face is just not ready for you to be shaving like that and your head i don't i can't imagine shaving your head I'm, i feel for you guys i really do that you know now i know pat some of the officers at lamore pd they do this shave the brave every year where they uh shave their heads and their beards you know for a good cause and and uh next year i'm going to dare them to do it with a sword you know, and stuff. I mean, this guy, this is a sword. It may not be, you know, one of these big Civil War swords, but, you know, it's, it's a sword. It's, it's not a straight razor. And, and you know, this is, this is a bloody mess that's happening here, you know. But so anyway, shaving off hair and beard, it's symbolic of things like sorrow and judgment. There's a bunch of scriptures you can read about that, of course. For Ezekiel, who was a priest, who was of the priestly line, it was more than that. It was a reproach. Concerning the priests, you read in Leviticus 21.5, They shall not make any bald place on their heads, nor shall they shave the edges of their beards, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. And so they weren't to shave in any special. They were to have full beards, and they weren't to have a bald spot on their head by shaving. 
Now, earlier, Ezekiel had complained when God asked him to cook his rations using his own waste. He said, I'm not going to defile myself under the law of Moses by handling human waste in that manner. And so God said, okay, that's fine. But here he goes along with God's request to uh, do something that is out of the ordinary. Why? Well, the shaving didn't really defile him. Uh, It wasn't, you know, uh, a defiling thing. It only disqualified him from functioning as a priest at least under the law. And this was part of the symbolism as well, because since the temple would fall, and since Ezekiel would never actually serve as a priest in the temple, the shaving was a way for him to put an exclamation point on his personal heartache as a priest who would never serve the Lord. I mean, you know, uh, when you were born into the priestly line, I mean, you were excited about growing up and getting to be 30 years old so that you could be a priest and serve in your turn there at the temple at Jerusalem. I mean, it was, you know, it's, 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 it's like getting to the major leagues, you know. It's, it's just, it's everything that you wanted to do. And we read earlier how Ezekiel was taken captive before his 30th birthday and the siege of Jerusalem was going to take place, he would never serve as a priest in the temple. And so uh, it was this final kind of symbol that you would see, this gaunt man having just shaved himself with a sword, of course, the sword symbolizing, as we'll see, the uh, armies of Nebuchadnezzar. The sins of his fellow Israelites had ruined Ezekiel's life. Think about it. He was a righteous Jew. He had no part in any of this disobedience or rebellion that was taking place in Israel. He wanted to serve the Lord. He was ministering, you know, in that capacity. They had ruined his life. Yet, he continued to minister to them. And he did it in ways that were extreme, that caused him extreme, uh, uh, you know, sorrow and heartache and discomfort. Uh, you, you know, we see Jonah. Jonah doesn't want to go to the Ninevites because he's afraid God's going to save them. And in kind of in an opposite way, Ezekiel, you would think he'd say, hey, I'm not going to talk to these people. These people ruined my life. What, what, what do I want to talk to these people for? You know, let, bring your judgment, but I'm not going to warn them. My life is ruined. What? You want me to eat starvation rations cooked over an open fire with cow dung and drink a quart of water a day and lay on my side for 430 days and shave my head with a sword? You got the wrong prophet here. I'm kind of in a bad mood about this. But no, he did. He continued to minister to them. And, and it's an important example of the kind of heart we must maintain through our own heartache sometimes. God... Uh, You know, this is that thing we tell husbands and wives and we tell everybody, you do your work and your ministry and your serving as unto the Lord. There's no, you know, when the Lord says, hey, I want you to minister to these people, there's no saying, I don't like these people. They're weird. They're sinners. They ruined my life. No, because the Lord, he knows that. That's why they need ministry. They need somebody just like you who can represent him because that's just what he does he says you know i'm going to come into your world i'm going to become a man i'm going to live among you then you're going to reject me you're going to despise me 
you're going to pull out my beard, you're going to beat me, you're going to spit on me, you're going to ridicule me on the cross, all the while I'm praying for you. And so if you have any fancy notions of what it is to minister to people, uh, just, you know, it's, it's being on the cross, that's what it is ultimately. And Ezekiel understood that and he went the distance. He, he said, all right, Lord, that's fine. I'm doing this as unto you. I'll never be your priest, but I will be your prophet. Of, of course, as I said, the sword would represent the authority and power of King Nebuchadnezzar. The hairs of Ezekiel represented individual Israelites. A third of them, he says, would burn with fire in the midst of the city. These would be the casualties in the city during the 18-month-long siege. Elsewhere, we read, we'll read in a minute, but in other passages also, we read that they resorted to cannibalism because conditions deteriorated so dramatically. You understand this was, this was ancient warfare. This was, you know, 6th century warfare. Giant army comes, surrounds your city, and they just sit there camped out. They have a supply line coming to them from their, you know, home base, and you can't leave the city, and nothing can come into the city, and so obviously you only have so much food and water, and at some point, somebody gets tired of eating other people because that's all that's left and they open a gate. And they say, hey, I would rather die. And then the army, which has been out there for 18 months, two years, you know, uh, they're like, you know, if, you know, they're soldiers. They get tired of getting drunk every night and, and, and wrestling with each other. They want to kill somebody. And so, man, let's go, wow, you know, there's an open gate. Let's go. We're going to kill everybody. We're going to cut them to pieces. We're going to, you know, pillage and destroy. I mean, this, was, this is brutality. This is terrible stuff that's going on. And so God says a third of them are going to die like that. A third of them are going to be struck with the sword. These are those killed when the Babylonian forces broke through. A third would scatter in the wind. They would be dispersed all over the globe. A sword would follow them, and that would indicate even more persecution. A remnant, however, would be saved. These were represented by the few hairs put in the hem of Ezekiel's garment, in the fold of his garment. Even these, however, according to verse 4, would suffer. What is the fire that goes out from them into all the house of Israel? Well, it's believed by scholars to be a reference to events that occurred after the siege, a guy named Gedaliah was set up to govern Jerusalem. And he was a good governor. He understood this was God's judgment and he was kind of going along with the program until he was assassinated. And it brought upon the Jews further fury from Babylon. You just didn't want to mess with King Nebuchadnezzar. Especially since God said he was his instrument and that he was using him. And, and every time they tried to make an alliance with some foreign force... Uh, you know, he got mad and uh, he would come and do something crazy uh, there. And so the fire came after them again. Now, I would again point out that the righteous were consigned to suffer with the unrighteous. When God's prophets found themselves suffering because of the unrighteous, as I said, they looked beyond them to the Lord and rejoiced in him. They understood that they were a part of something larger and grander than what we might term fairness in this life. Uh, yeah, I used to love asking the kids if they wanted us to be fair. It was my favorite thing to do. Because they would always say, not always, that's an exaggeration. One time they said, 
No, occasionally one of them would say, that's not fair, and I would light up. And I would say, would you like everything to be fair? And then they'd say, well, no, of course not. And so, you know, so, uh, but, and we understand that as adults. And then we turn around at work or, you know, in church or wherever we are and we think, hey, that's not fair. I'm being overlooked. I'm being mistreated. I'm not getting, you know, the accolades I deserve or whatever it is. That's not fair. Uh, Well, you know, life's not fair. We live and die and as unto the Lord. You know, are you doing what the Lord wants you to do? That's the only real question. Uh, of course, life's not fair. Uh, the, the world is is a place of vanity. It says in the book of Romans. Uh, it, it you know the whole creation groans, waiting for the redemption. And so we live for something future, something further. There's always something grander going on than fairness in this life, and it has to do with. How can I, in this situation, build up other believers in their faith? How can I uh, speak to non-believers about Jesus Christ? Uh, you know, ra- this is what my life is all about, building others up, reaching out to others. I don't have time to worry about and wonder if things are fair. Now, the drama was done. Ezekiel was transitioning into a new phase of ministry. And it began with a talk explaining the symbolism of Ezekiel's four-act drama. So let's start reading in verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments and they have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, indeed, I, even I, am against you and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And I will do among you what I have never done and the like of which I will never do again because of all your abominations. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments among you, and all of you who remain I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. One-third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst, One third shall fall by the sword all around you and I will scatter another third to the winds and I will draw out a sword after them. Now one thing to note in passing is that a lot of times in the Bible God immediately gives the interpretation of what he has just presented in symbols. And so we read the symbolism of Ezekiel and his hair and the thirds and it seemed pretty obvious but just in case you weren't sure God tells you exactly what he intended. And, and I, I love to point out, especially when we're in Revelation, the signs and symbols in the Bible are not meant to confound anybody or to confuse anybody. They're meant to communicate in ways that cannot be mistaken, just the way signs always are. Signs uh, are kind of a universal language so that we all know to stop at the stop sign uh, and we don't have to know what you know, how to speak Farsi, you know, to understand what that means. And so uh, these uh, signs often, either in the same passage or certainly as the Bible interprets itself, you can figure out from passage to passage what God was talking about. 
Now, had Israel really done more wickedness than the pagan nations around her? Well, yes, in the sense that the Jews knew better than to act as pagans. They had a greater revelation and with it came a greater responsibility. Their sin was not of ignorance or out of ignorance, but it was deliberate sin. And it's the same with us. Sin among Christians is worse than it is out in the world. Now, we are quick to decry various sins among non-believers. That might be okay. That might even be necessary as we're working through the Word and teaching the Word of God and as we're you know, interfacing with society and all of that. However, we should be even quicker to deal with sin in our own hearts and in our own midst as an assembly. We don't get a pass because we're already saved. On an individual level, when I look at somebody who's committing some kind of a sin and they're not a believer, they are only acting out according to their own nature. They're acting the way that they were born into sin. And they, uh, though, though society has laws and regulations and we're thankful for that, we don't live in anarchy, there's a sense in which they can't do anything other than that or at least you would say they don't have the power to not do it. Now a Christian, boy, I get born again and now I have the Holy Spirit of God living in me and I have the Word of God, and I know all of these things. And so sin in the camp is a lot worse than sin in the world. And so if we're going to decry sin in the world, then let's start, judgment begins in the house of God, I think is, is uh, appropriate. Uh, and so I need to search my own heart, understand what a sinner I am. Paul the Apostle was uh, not uh, afraid to say that he was the chief of sinners. He understood that his flesh remained and that he could fall into sin. Uh, and, and, you know, we need to be a people that is concerned about sin in our midst. Now, here you have the interpretation of the cutting of the hair into thirds. And you also get a little bit more detail, like the fathers cannibalizing their sons and vice versa. Why so severe? Well, God had already tried to reason with his people for centuries through the prophets. One thing you can never accuse God of is being quick-tempered. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish uh, at any time. They had willfully, deliberately, arrogantly refused to repent. What other alternatives were there to bring them back to their spiritual senses? I mean, sometimes people say, well, you know, God did this and this and this and He, he let all these terrible things happen. When you're studying the book of Joshua, people, non-believers get upset because God went in and he had the Israelites kill all the Canaanites. He said, I want you to wipe them all out. Well, he'd given them hundreds of years to repent. And the things they were doing, I mean, regardless what you think about capital punishment, they deserved to die. I mean, they were sacrificing their own children, uh, you know, to, to their gods. Uh, it was crazy stuff. But ask that person, say, okay, you know, I can understand that as an argument, but given the fact that these people were wicked and they had been warned for 400 years or more, what is the final alternative? What is another alternative to reach them? And with the Israelites, God kept sending prophets and they kept killing them and ridiculing them and throwing them into dungeons and, and cisterns and ruining their lives. At some point, you have to do something. You, you can't just keep sending these people to die. Uh, and so God said, well, I'm going to have to discipline you then. 
I've said this before and I mean it in the, in the most reverent way possible. Sometimes I think God is like the parents in Target. I mean, seriously, if you, look through the, if you look at the history of Israel, it's like God is constantly saying, if you rebel one more time, listen, the next time you rebel, okay, I'm serious now. I'm going to count to 400, and after 400 years, I'm going to act and stuff. And then finally he acts. I, don't you love, you know, well, maybe you are one, I hope not, but, you know, uh, don't you? I, I love, you know, the, the thing in, 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 in uh, you know, one lady the other day, did I tell you this story? I was in the bank, and this lady was just having so much trouble with her little toddler, he would not... He was oblivious to the fact that he even had a mother. I mean, it was just, he was just acting crazy. And, and she started threatening him and threatening him. And, and she said, if you don't, you know, come here right now, no TV for you. And he just blew her off. And finally she said, all right, you are never watching TV again as long as you live. And I thought, man, no wonder he doesn't believe her because she's like into some world of hyperbole, you know. I mean, that's so not true that even a three-year-old understands that. But I think God sometimes, God sometimes is just, you know, that extra long-suffering in the sense that he, he lets us go. And the same thing is true in our Christian experience, too. You know, a lot of times you start getting involved with things that are sinful, and it would be better, I think, if God just uh, busted you immediately. I mean, if you just immediately got busted, but... Nothing happens, nobody knows, uh, and pretty soon you become, you know, braver and braver in your sin. And eventually God, uh, you know, the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out and, and you will get busted. But, but you know, God is, uh, in, in that sense, maybe, uh, you know, more merciful than, than we ought to be as parents uh, and stuff. And so uh, it, it's just interesting. And so what all, uh, alternative did he have? He said, There's no, I've, done, I've done it all. We've done everything there is to do. Now I have to judge you. Second Chronicles 36, you read, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, the Babylon, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, he had no compassion on their young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. While their temple stood, they had blown off proper worship. They had become idolaters. So the Lord took away the temple. Perhaps if they were unable to worship, it would create a longing within them for the things of the Lord. Commentators often point out, even Jewish commentators who aren't believers, that the Babylonian captivity cured the Israelites of idolatry once and for all. They've never been involved in idolatry. Now, they may be unbelievers. They, they don't believe in Jesus Christ, but they do not worship idols anymore. Uh, that, that, that siege of Jerusalem, that captivity, cured them of idolatry. In one sense, God was simply giving them over to themselves. Having rejected Him, they were in a downward spiral to destruction anyway. At least by his direct intervention and judgment, he could show them his jealousy and with it his love. You might, you know, there's two ways of looking at this. God, why are you doing this to us? Well, I know why, but why this? Because I love you too much to just let you go 
and, and be absorbed into the pagan culture. Uh, you're still my people. For our purposes, key in on verse 11, they had defiled God's sanctuary with their detestable things and abominable practices. Whether it is my physical body or whether it is the church as the body of Christ, we must guard against anything detestable or abominable. Now, those two words, they sound so bad that we can't really relate to them. But in the context of Israel, they refer to idolatry and idol worship. And we just saw on Sunday in our studies in 1 Corinthians that, uh, for example, covetousness is idolatry. And so when we begin to covet uh, other people, other things... We're committing idolatry. It is detestable and abominable to God. Now, our chapter ends with God telling Israel he was going to use them to minister to others, but not in the way that they would like. Verse 13, Thus shall my anger be spent, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be avenged, and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you in the sight of all who pass by. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you when I execute judgments among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I shall send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Israel had been chosen by God to represent His glory among the nations of the world. As the Gentiles looked to Israel, they were supposed to see what it meant to know the living God and experience grace and mercy. Israel rejected God, but they would go on being His witness. Only now the things the Gentiles would see through them would be the Lord's zeal to discipline His wayward people. New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, God kills them because they lied to the Holy Spirit. They were a witness, pretty powerful witness. Not the witness they wanted to be, not leading people to Christ, but uh, leading people to fear the Lord in terms of uh, how he might act and react. And so they were a witness. Israel uh, being disciplined and yet a witness. Let me give you a personal anecdote. When I was a kid and Israel was attacked by her neighbors during one of those wars, probably the Six-Day War, and she defeated overwhelming odds. I remember my dad, who is by no means a believer, said to me, you can't mess with the Jews. They are God's people. And, and you know what? It may be somewhat unscholarly, but I think that statement is a good summary of what we see in these closing verses. So even though they're being judged, even though God's hand is against them, even though the, His fury is upon them, they're still a witness to the world of the Lord, Jehovah, and His power. People look at the Jews and they say, there's a relationship there between those people and their God that is fantastic. It's to be, it's to be feared on the one hand, but it's to be desired on the other hand. I mean, you, this is going to sound kind of weird, but you almost want somebody who loves you that much who is that jealous over you that he will not leave you alone to your own devices. And, and through the centuries, no matter where the Jews are, there is this sense that people have. It's a spiritual sense, even among non-believers, that God is dealing with these people. They belong to Him in a special relationship. Israel continued to be and continues to this day to be a witness of God and His desire and design 
for all the nations of the world. Now, we are witnesses all the time, not just when we witness. Let's be witnesses to God's glory rather than his fury. We're in tough times in America and in the world. They are tough economic times for sure, but it's also tough morally and spiritually, and it has been for a long time. Uh, if the economy gets better, and I'm all for that, you know, I'm, I'm hey, that'd be great. But we're still in a downward spiral morally and spiritually. Like Ezekiel, we leave our homes every day and we act out a drama in our words and by our activities. We do witness for the Lord. You can practice your lines and get ready to hit your mark by spending time with the Lord. Get rid of all detestable, abominable things. You don't have to be gaunt and live on starvation rations, but it wouldn't hurt to minimize contact with the things of this world that are passing away. We believe the return of Jesus to resurrect and rapture the church is what? Imminent is the word. Not soon. Remember, we don't say that anymore. It's not soon because that could be tomorrow, could be the next day. Soon, you know, it's imminent. It's now. It didn't happen just now, then it's right now. It, it, it could happen at any moment. As the Looney Tunes used to say, on with the show, this is it. You're the show. Get on with it.